I looked at the board and it said, I believe the board in the stadium said two seconds. Yep. So I looked at that and just like, you know, I said Tom made a, br- a great cut and I'd set that up pick for him and um, he caught it and put in the goal. So, but I, I mean, I completely like don't remember making the pass. I don't remember seeing him open. Like I completely like blacked out. Welcome to an all new episode of Suiting Up Podcast, everyone. Man, it feels good to be back. I've missed the dialogue, the intellectual stimulation, your post-pod feedback, and here we are. It's been a crazy few weeks since I shared the lead-in episode to our world championships. If you haven't listened to that, by the way, it's just the episode before this one. And just this past week, I took a 12-hour flight back from Tel Aviv, Israel, to New York City. And it was the Federation of International Lacrosse's 13th World Championship. This is an event that's hosted every four years, pitting the best players in the world, on behalf of their countries, playing in a round-robin format, then a single elimination playoff. Quick history. The World Games has been around since 1967. Back then, it was four teams. It was the U.S., Canada, Australia, and England. And the U.S. has won 10 times and Canada three. Side note, though. Lacrosse goes even further back. We were once an Olympic sport. That was in 1904-1908. Canada won both those times. And the U.S. sent Johns Hopkins as their representative. So go Jays. This was my third World Games. I played in 2010 in Manchester, England, and 2014 in Denver, Colorado, and these past two weeks in Netanya, Israel. In 2010, we won, and in 2014, we lost. It's an insane tournament, though. We play seven games in 10 days. Each game and country is intense. It's physical and skilled. We battle through often sleepless nights and definitely in-game injuries. Oh, and a side note on the sports growth, though. There were 46 nations competing in Israel. It's up from 38 in 2014 when the games were in Denver, Colorado, and taking us all the way back to 1998, which were my personal favorite world games where the U.S. and Canada went to multiple overtimes. Well, in 1998, those games had 11 participating countries. Shows our sports growth. This week's podcast will be one that reflects on the games with one of the world's best attackmen. He's set records everywhere he's played, from the NCAA at Cornell to Major League Lacrosse. Rob Pinnell is what I like to call a prolific point scorer. I've had the privilege of playing with him now in two world championships with Team USA and an MLL championship with the New York Lizards. Few work as hard and as passionately as RP3. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. Enjoy my World Games conversation with gold medalist attackman, my good friend, Rob Pinnell. All right, RP3. PR. Long time coming, man. Long time. Been wanting to come on this podcast for quite some time. We've been trying to book it. Finally got the look. Yeah, well, I've I've been trying to book you (laughs) in New York, and we've tried to do it during training camp, then during the season... And now we're at the end of season here, and we're sitting in Frisco, Texas. I want to say Dallas, but we're technically in Frisco. Big game coming up. For our final uh, or second-to-last MLL game. But coming off of a world championship, I want to get to that. I spend the bulk of this podcast on that. But RP3, let's start, let's start with three. Have you always, You've always – I know you wore it in Cornell. Did you wear it in high school? I did. Why? Um, well, I was originally number 10 in when I started playing the game, and when I moved – from Comac to Smithtown, I moved to a new team, and uh, number 10 was taken by the, the coach's son. 
So I couldn't get 10, and I picked, I picked three for Babe Ruth. Oh, for Babe Ruth? <laughs> yeah. okay, I, was, I was hoping it was going to be yeah. for something. Like, yeah. I don't know. They gave me three, and I played well. No, they had like a choice. For and I was Babe like, Ruth? I had a choice, and I was like, Babe Ruth, no, number three. Boom. Let's go. Did you watch baseball growing up? I, I was a baseball player. I was primary. That was like my sport growing up. Really? Uh, before I switched to lacrosse, yeah. I didn't know that. So I love baseball. Yeah. What position in the lineup did I was, you bat? I was a catcher, and I often batted two or three. Two or three. Yeah. So you got on bases. Yeah. When did that? Uh, when did lacrosse take over baseball? That's like a pretty yeah. big deal, by the way. I never played baseball. I mean, when we were growing up, it was always lacrosse versus baseball because they're both spring sports. Yeah. And so I, I was like, oh, I hate baseball. I hate baseball. And now so we you're say like that, the right? poster child of <laughs> baseball converting to lacrosse. Yeah, it's perfect. I guess I, I played baseball. And I played them both for a while, for like two years, which I guess was felt like a while because it was just like going from game to game. And then finally, when I when I started really getting into lacrosse, I was playing for the fifth grade team, and they asked me to play up, you know, for the sixth grade team, you know, a lot. So then the summer got busy, um, and I was like, you know what? I think it's my I think it's time to uh, put baseball away. But baseball was my dad's sport, so was it? Yeah, it was kind of. And you're a great golfer. You golf. I've been golfing my whole life. Just as much as you practice lacrosse. Probably more. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a scratch golfer? Uh, almost, yeah. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Almost. I'll get there one day. And what other sports did you play? Um, so golf I played, you know, probably before any sport because as soon as I could stand, I, my dad had me swinging a club. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Did just, you think about playing golf in college? I played in high school. Yeah. But I never – I love lacrosse more, and I guess, you know, I didn't play enough golf when I was earlier. I'd always – piss off my coaches because I'd, I'd shoot like a you know 37 or 38 on it was nine hole matches but i would i would get like a nine on a hole and they'd be like Ugh. and they'd be like why can't you just get like a six yeah. and i'm like because i gotta like try and go for the best shot you know i could go for the home run is that what you're doing i was just yeah i would always try and like hit like the impossible shot yeah but uh i played baseball tennis i, you know, I took you took private tennis lessons for a little while uh -huh. um a lot of hand eye hand eye Stick and ball sports. Ten, you know, as a family, we, we played a lot of sports so on vacations and stuff. So golf and tennis were those sports that, yeah. you know, we could play a lot of us at a time. And uh, whenever we went on vacation when I was younger, we'd have, you know, we played doubles matches with my parents and my sister and I. And James would kind of run around and smack the ball and, yeah. and be the fifth guy out there. But, um, yeah, and basketball, I guess, is one of my loves as well that I played in high school and, yeah. and growing up. So. When did you commit full-time to lacrosse? Did you play all those sports through high school, or did you, like, taper off like I did my sophomore year? Yeah, I played – I actually got cut from the basketball team as a junior, but I played freshman, sophomore. That probably pissed you off. Senior year. <laughs> yeah, well, they went 0-17, so it's all right. <laughs> I wasn't that pissed. Yeah. But I just concentrated on lacrosse. Yeah. Um, but I came back my senior year and started. And then I played golf for three years in high school, freshman, sophomore, junior year, and then played football my senior year. Huh? And then lacrosse every year. You think so, uh, I play three sports, sports every year? Yeah. Multiple sports is the way to go. Yeah, I guess I just love it, and it just kind of kept me sane that I I wasn't playing lacrosse all the time, and allowed me to to do what I love, which is just play every sport. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's nothing like playing golf, in my opinion, and being out there, and it's just you. You know, you can't get mad at anybody else but yourself. Yeah. And then basketball. You know, there's no sport that. You get to move like that, and you know, I was always in my best shape coming into lacrosse season after basketball yeah. season. So. Yeah, and uh, and that's kind of where I got my roots in lacrosse from was basketball because my first people I got who got me into lacrosse, Timmy Tranko, his dad was my basketball coach, and kind of like, what position should I play? Where should I play? He's like, well, you're the point guard in basketball. Go behind the goal and play X. 
So it's kind of how it started. Did your dad ever play lacrosse? No, he he just he was baseball and football at uh, he played at Brown and he kind of threw the ball around a little bit with his with his fraternity brothers, but yeah, he didn't really have any. He never played like competitively or. You know, That's or, like my dad. He he uses basketball analogies to talk about our lacrosse games that we yeah. play in. What does your dad do? Uh, well, he was my basketball coach, so I mean, growing up, it was a lot him comparing it to other sports yeah but he i mean lacrosse is his favorite sport right now i think i mean he doesn't watch as much as i catch him watching baseball every now and yeah. then but uh but I you mean, and he, james are both excelling they you guys yeah. both play pro you guys both had great college careers james at virginia you at cornell probably with james more than anything my dad coached him he didn't coach me in lacrosse he coached my brother and that's really when he learned the sport and uh so whenever he's talking about lacrosse he kind of you know he 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 knows what he just uses lacrosse to yeah. talk about lacrosse but so you talked about your mental edge in golf and how you thought about basketball transitioning to lacrosse and your passion became lacrosse shortly after high school. Uh, so much that you, uh, for your college decision, waited out a year uh, because you felt like you weren't being recruited at the level that you could play. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. I, I was also a late bloomer. I was young. Uh, you know, we both have December birthdays. Yeah. So just another similarity between us. <laughs> right. RPPR, December born. <laughs> so uh, I was young. I, my parents actually pushed me ahead. Um, so I graduated high school. I was 17. Hmm. Um, I didn't turn 18. I wouldn't turn 21 until senior year of college if I didn't take a postgraduate year. Yeah. So not only was I young, I was, I would, it took me a while to mature as well, just physically and, yeah. um, you know, put on weight and my height and, and all that. So it kind of came later. And when I, when that happened is when I really started to take those next steps as a player, unfortunately in the lacrosse world, it's too late, yeah. um, with the recruiting. So I just took an extra year at Deerfield Academy. Yeah. What did, uh, what did you do in way of outreach before you took that extra year? Were you trying to get eyeballs on, or was it purely just the early recruiting in lacrosse, which I'll admit is, is still a little bit foreign to me outside of what I can see. I understand yep. it for the kids and the parents that are going through it, but I was probably the last class graduating in 2004 that took official visits and made yep. their college decision their fall of senior year in high sure. school. Yeah, so I actually I was supposed to go to Quinnipiac, which I made my decision fall of senior year. Um, I took I was you know I was Quinnipiac. I was looking at Towson as well. I took an official visit there. Yeah, um, wasn't for me. So I was like, I didn't really have anybody else looking at me. So I was yeah. like, all right, well Quinnipiac's left. Let me go there. Um, did that, you know, had a scholarship and everything. It was great. After this, my senior year is when I kind of was like, all right, I want to play at a higher level. I went from having seventy points. My junior year to 130 my senior year, yep. led Long Island, you know, was an All-American, which I, I didn't see happening. And the decision was done. And it, the decision was done. So and classes were full. Classes were full. I mean, even Did anyone try to squeeze full. you in? Yeah, a couple coaches were. You know, believe it or not, Petro, uh, you know, was talking. I was talking a little bit to Hopkins, UNC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple oh. coaches were like, oh, you know, we might have interest, but I had signed with Quinnipiac. Coach wouldn't let huh. me. Coach wouldn't let me go. The Quinnipiac coach. No. He didn't let yeah. me go for the whole year, next year. So I couldn't talk to scholarship schools. So you couldn't even do it. Couldn't, couldn't even do it. So, huh. um, so I could really only go to an Ivy League school or a Patriot League school. So that was why the Ivy and Patriots came into play. Uh, in the Otherwise, world. so say, let's play this out. Say you would have, uh, say, say Coach Petro would have continued down that path. You would have had to wait effectively two years. Yeah. Because you would have done your PG and then had to wait. I would have had to wait a year. Yeah. No way. Yeah. You had to wait a season to a whole college season. Yeah. So Coach Tambroni 
came got out, lucky. Came out of nowhere. Yeah. He did. We say we both got lucky, you know, because they, they weren't even recruiting me. The Penn and Brown were recruiting me. And they both told me no on the same day that they didn't have a spot while I was at the airfield. And then Cornell wasn't recruiting me yet. And I was like, you know, crying to my mom. Yeah. Um, but I was like, what am I doing here? I'm wasting a whole year. Um, and then out of nowhere, uh, you know, partially because J.J. Gilbain, who, you know, I know you know, and another, my teammate, Chip Darty were at Deerfield. They went on their visit, and the coach had asked a little bit how, you know, you guys know anyone? We have one spot. They said, well, this kid just came to Deerfield. He doesn't doesn't have a place to go. No way. Uh, so they had a highlight tape of me that they finally watched and came out of nowhere. So we, we both got a little bit lucky. Yeah, you waited it out. But patience, man, is, is a virtue, as they say. It but was stressful as hell, though, my man. <laughs> it's so stressful. But I, I, I got to tell you, man, there are so many parents and kids that uh, you know feel like they've missed it, the yeah. opportunity and your resiliency through that process. And then leaning on your parents and friends. That's that's something that I've never given way of advice. Is like, <sighs> hey, ask some of your committed friends to put in a good word for yeah. you. <laughs> right? That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of schools that I wanted to go to that my had committed friends had put in a good word. You know, their their dads were talking to the coach like, you got to get this kid. Like Delaware. My sister went to Delaware. One of my best friends growing up, Matt Stepbrack, was there. And his dad was like to the coach, like, you have to look at this kid. Like, he's he's great. Like, you got to yeah. get him. And I went there and spoke to them. And still, you know, no bite. But. I mean, this is an uh, insane story because you, you go on and set the record for NCAA lacrosse points over a career. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not even just like, hey, there's a talented attackman that came in and won uh, All-America honors. Right? Yeah. This is someone who set records. Do you think that you uh, you played I, – I know you do now as we've talked about it separately, but was it early on developing uh, that chip on your shoulder when you were playing? Yeah, I, I or think was it was just part of your competitive nature. I think it was kind of the competitive nature in me, and I think when I think it started in high school, right? When you're not getting recruit, recruited, when things aren't going your way, you, you just look at yourself. You're like, okay, what am I doing wrong? What am I, you know, what do I need to be doing differently? So you just continue to work on your game because you're like, okay, the attitude I developed was like, I'm not good enough to play Division One right now, so I need to get better. What do I need to work on? Is it my speed? Is it my footwork? Is it my left hand? Is it my shot? Is it my dodging? And and just you continue to work on those things. Yeah. So when I started to have success, I never looked at it as like, oh, I'm finally having success. I looked at it as if, okay, I'm having success. Okay, but what can I do to be better? How can I take my game to that next level? What do I, you know, I, I was never comfortable because I always thought, judging by the past that something bad was going to happen or that like, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, I was getting lucky. I don't know. I just didn't, I, I just continued to think that I needed to work and continue to grow as a player despite the success that I had. So I was always just like, I, I developed that mindset and just kind of had to just keep moving forward, keep moving forward year after year. So I don't think it was so much as the chip on my shoulder, but the mindset that I developed from not being recruited is in like, why aren't I getting recruited? I never thought of myself as the best and that I needed to be better. And that's kind of what just kind of kept me going. I've got a question for you. When your check engine light beeps on, do you worry if it's another routine maintenance or something more serious? Me, I've never been much of a car person. I typically leave that up to my dad or trust a mechanic. Although this is the opportunity for a mechanic to blindfold me and potentially charge us thousands of dollars in unnecessary car repairs until we found a solution. It's called Fixed, F-I-X-D. 
It's like a health monitor for your car. It constantly scans your car for problems and tells you in plain English what's wrong with your car. They have automatic sensors that plug into your car and connect to the free fixed app on your smartphone, and it can be installed in seconds on any car made after 1996, where anyone can do it and there are no tools required. Fixed sells over 50,000 units each month. They alert you to over 7,000 potential issues in real time. They tell you exactly what's wrong, so you don't have to wonder or guess. You can monitor multiple cars from that same smartphone too. And last but not least, you can return your fix within 30 days for a full refund if you're not happy. So it's a great deal. Right now, you can get fixed for as low as $39. But my listeners will get an additional 10% off when you enter the promo code RABEL at listentomycar.com. So go to listentomycar.com and enter promo code RABEL for an additional 10% off the already discounted price of $39. Enjoy. Fixed. Yeah, I I think there's a a really salient point around the curiosity that overlays the competitive nature. Because I think that a lot of athletes who are hyper-competitive, part of being hyper-competitive is... Uh, you know, that notion that you are going to run through a wall to accomplish uh, your goal and the athlete that has the curiosity that overlays competition thinks, okay, I'm not going to stop to achieve my goal, but let me ask myself what I'm doing wrong. Or clearly, like I can look at this objectively or try to zoom out and say, I need to improve here and there. And I think that Oftentimes, athletes uh, ignore that, those weaknesses. Yep. Um, and, and so trying to catch up to, to where we are now and, and why we hit record today is, is coming off this world championship and, uh, and why that point is relevant is in 2014, we played together in Denver um, and lost the world championship game. There were a lot of similarities between both tournaments, us in Canada going back and forth, U.S. winning the round-robin game against Canada, um, you could argue that in 2014, we had, at least from a scoreboard standpoint, um, maybe more firepower on offense. The style of offense and the style of defense was much different. Yep. But when you look at yourself from 2014 to 2018, you look intrinsically, what can I improve to better myself for the second go around? What were some of those things? I think it was, you know, not so much myself. I mean, you know, we both had great tournaments in 2014. Yeah. I mean, we were we were personally, you and I, you know, we were lighting up the scoreboard and and uh, we did a great job of that. But I think was that necessarily best for our offense because did they need to rely on us, you know, at all times? Yeah. And I think that's something that we both changed this time around and did a great job of just playing within the offense and trusting the players around you. Yeah. And I think that's something that I really have had to work on over my career is trust the guys around me. And, you know, I guess in high school, I was always looked at, okay, I need the, I have the ball on my stick. I need to make a play, whether it's an assist or a goal, I got to make something happen. Even at Cornell to a certain extent, you yeah. know, we didn't have the depth um, that we do now. And now in the Lizards, same thing, trusting that, you know, it's, I don't have to make a play every time. And I think with Team USA from 14 to 18, um, that was something that, I really had to work on and something really I had to commit to. Yeah. And I think when you look at the games and, and the scoring of our offense, it was so evenly distributed, you know, guys, 15, 20, 25 points yep. over the tournament. There was no guys that really separated themselves from the rest. So trusting my teammates and committing to that and realizing that I don't have to be the guy that has to make something happen every time. It was something that I really tried to work on. Um, 
And I think also, you know, as you know, my physical fitness, you know, aspect of my game and just kind of being the best that I could be there and taking that to a new level. Um, I think you learn so much yeah. from 14 to 18. And something that I learned as well was just to not get too high and not get too low. It's, it's a long, you know, one and a half, two weeks of being there. And you get so excited about certain games and certain wins, but you know that you're really only there for one game. And I think I try to stay calm and, and stay in the moment the entire time and realize that, you know, there's bigger things to be accomplished here than beating Scotland or England by yep. 20 goals. Yeah, I, I, I want to jump into your training, but you, the point that you bring up around trusting your teammates, you and I have talked about this at length at, at the pro side of things, at least as teammates for a number of years. But I just want to underscore that it's not trust in the traditional sense of like, hey, you know, is this guy going to screw it up? Because I know both you and I have discussed our teammates. You know, these are first team All Americans, MLL All Pros, All World Team players. It's not about that. What we've always discussed is it's more of like the desire that that you have in in the belief in yourself to know that hey, I can get to the net and score every time I have the ball in my stick. Yep. And, and so what it really is is like to 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 acquiesce and, and kind of know that I can do that, but so can the other guys. Uh, and I would even analogously look at USA basketball, where you look at LeBron James now with the Lakers, but with the Cavs, the ball's in his hand every time up and down the floor. And, uh, and with USA, he gives it to Kobe. He gives it to Kevin Durant. And I guess no better team that does it now than the Golden State Warriors. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's something that, that a lot of really terrific athletes have to um, learn to be better at and, and know that if you're listening and, and you're hearing like trusting other people, it's, it's more about um, giving them their go and knowing that you know, while you can score with the ball on your stick – that uh, that so can they and uh, and let's acquiesce and and for the greater good uh, to your training though you have uh, significantly ramped it up <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think uh, it's it's been uh, two or three years watching you since I came over to the lizards in 2015 um, what what what's the origin of that because you've always been a terrific athlete and always yeah. worked out, but the level that you've taken it to now is is beyond what I think most professional athletes even do. Yeah, you know, I look at to where I've, how I've gotten to where I've gotten, and it's to me it was you know we talked about me playing a lot of sports, the hand eye. I always had great hand eye. You know, it was from the time I could walk and you know ride a bike I did everything very I was accelerated when I was younger just because I I had that you know I can three years old I was shooting on a 10-foot basketball hoop and just that was great but when I I got to that kind of middle point in my life middle school my first few years of high school where I kind of hit a lull because physically I wasn't there and what got me back to you know that uptrend was me committing to being a better athlete you know, not just on the field, but in the weight room, going to a track. You know, I would just be in basketball season in my senior year of high school. And on Sundays, when we had our day off, I was waking up at 8 a.m. My dad was taking me to work with a, a speed trainer at a track. And it was freezing cold, but I was like, this is what I need for lacrosse season. So um, I guess my love for fitness developed 
then because I saw this is what I needed to to get to that next level. And when I started to see success, I was like, all right, I got to keep going in the weight room. I got to keep grinding it out here and be my best here. You know, in college, I was one of the highest squats in the team and, and bench press, and I just embraced it. And how did I get to that? I needed to be consistent with it, not just going into the weight room once or twice a week, but going in there three, four times. Now, I just kind of looked at everything that I'm doing, and I'm like, you know, how much better am I going to get as a lacrosse player as far as shooting and, yeah. and passing? You know, I, I've been playing this game for 20 years, and, you know, I could, there's always room to be good and, and be sharp. Small but margins. Small margins, right? So, like, what can I do? And I just got back to that fitness aspect and realizing that, you know, I'm going to be – I'm 28 years old, going to be 29, and um, being in the best physical shape as possible to be able to handle that. And uh, just kind of got a newfound love for it. Um, you know, my friend Brian in the city, and, you know, we, we started our own sessions. place Tone House kind of brought it back out in me, and it became fun. Yeah. You know, I wasn't just going into a gym and sitting in a squat rack or a bench press rack. It was, it was moving. It was quick. It was athletic, and uh, it was competitive. And I think they kind of brought out – you know, we, we only play in lacrosse in the summers and on the weekends, and it kind of brought out the competitive aspect in me and that training aspect in me, you know, all week long, all year long. And I've noticed with you, too, there's usually a conversation like, what do you do off-season, or at least with me, off-season training versus in-season? And it varies, but you've kept it consistent. Yep. Um, so in an ideal training day, let's let's rule out a game sure. that's nearby. What's it look like for you? Yeah, it's pretty uh, – I usually train at 10 a.m., and it's usually a 35, 40-minute workout. You know, go, go to Equinox with Brian, and we'll discuss beforehand what we're going to do, you know, whether it's the night before or the morning. And there's three things that we usually utilize more than anything, and that's the deadlift, it's the rower, and the assault bike. And I think between those three exercises and then throwing other stuff in there, we're moving the entire time, it's – you know, there's no time for breaks. There's no time for, you know, really isolating any body parts. Hmm. It's full body. It's three to four times a week, and you're moving the entire time. So we're getting our cardio in there a little bit as well. Yeah. So um, I think we're able to accomplish everything that we want in a shorter period of time because of the fact that we're hitting every body part. And, I, and I've seen... You know, I've done it both ways. You know, you do your college, you do your high school training, which is like, I'm going to do one party bar today, right? right? Like, let me go and do arms or yeah. let me go and do shoulders. You do your college training, which is a little bit more everything, but you still kind of have leg day, you know, upper yeah. body day. To now where I've done full body and kept it moving and kept it shorter. And the results I've seen are, have just been, you know, far greater than anything I've seen before. Yeah, two things jump out at me. One is uh, be really intentional about your workouts and you schedule it in advance yep. so you know what you're doing. I think that's so important. Like so important. people that walk into a gym without a plan, you're, you're going to waste 20 minutes guaranteed right there yeah. walking around figuring out what you're doing. Yeah. A distraction too that I'll, I'll highlight is a uh, cell phone. Oh, especially in between reps. It's the worst. You get in between reps, hop on your cell phone, and all of a sudden five minutes have gone by and the whole workout's cooked. It's gone. Yeah. The second is adding competition. Yep. So you keep mentioning you train with Brian, and when you were at Tone House, you would oftentimes bring a lot of MLL guys over. Yeah. So how important is that? And, and I've talked about it at a lot of our events with younger kids. Like adding layers of competition doesn't mean you have to have – a partner there while that's the easiest way to create a competitive sure. atmosphere you can time yourself and, and add that competitive layer and jay dyer does that a lot when he sends me workouts while i'm on the road but competition for you brings out the best absolutely i'd say i think it does in everyone um 
but for me, I, you know, I like that competitive. And it's friendly competition. You know, it's not like we're in there yeah, you're not getting pissed bells. off at each other, you yeah. know. Like, <laughs> it's friendly, you know. And, and we do time a lot of it even as while we're doing it just to, you know, you know, we're on social media and we're posting it. We're like, how fast can you do this yeah. type of deal? Um, so it is it is competition but you know we're excited for each other if we do beat one another or if we are doing it really fast we're like you know that's that's awesome you know let's give it speed at the next time you know it's not like you know screw you man but yeah since you guys post your workouts we do yeah a lot of them how can people follow them it's uh liv fit 30 so yeah. live fit 30 and uh yeah, i mean we, i'm not gonna lie i go on there and grab them they're good they're once quick or twice a week. people love it's and great. Or just grab a uh, you know a couple of exercise a couple of circuits here and there yep um you know we, we we use the med balls a lot the weighted med balls yep um and mix and match out there cool. is what we tell people when we instruct too it's like you don't have to do every shooting drill nope. that rob and i do but if there's one or two that you see that you like add that to your workout yep i live a life on the road from training to competition, the Rabel Tour, speaking engagements, and most importantly, travel to my podcast guest locations, like this evening. Having compatible luggage has been greatly important for me and my mindfulness, and I use Away. Away is first-class luggage at a coach price. Their approach is simple. They create special objects that are designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way that we all travel today. So they built their product from thousands of conversations with travelers like myself. So here are a number of reasons why I like Away outside of me taking mine everywhere with me. Number one, their interior features a patent-pending compression system, which is twofold. It's helpful for overpackers like myself. Number two, TSA-approved combination lock that's built into the top of the bag and prevents theft. This is huge for travelers like myself that prefer not to check bags. Number three, it has a removable, washable laundry bag that keeps dirty clothes separate from clean ones. And last but not least, there is a built-in chargeable outlet for yours and my devices. Now, because you're a loyal student at Podcast Listener, of course, I've sourced a great deal to layer on top of an already affordable product. You can get $20 off a brand new Away Travel suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com forward slash suiting up and use promo code suiting up during checkout. That's awaytravel.com forward slash suiting up for $20 off your suitcase. Away, it's first class luggage at a coach price. So 10 a.m., uh, the other thing that's evolved for you is your nutrition. Yep. And uh, I'll let you share it, but you're working out basically on an empty stomach. Completely empty. Okay. So <laughs> walk me through it. <laughs> a lot of people can't grasp that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, listen, your body gets used to anything. So uh, I do the intermittent fasting, and I'll be honest, I've, I've you know, since we were in Israel, I, I definitely have not done it as every day well, those circumstances which we'll touch on a little bit more different but uh yeah, so when i'm in new york when i'm in my everyday routine i'm doing it and it's i stop eating at 8 p.m the night before and you know have my vitamins whatever go to bed wake up in the morning drink a ton of water you know 30 ounces or so right off the bat and then you know you could have black coffee i've been trying not to do it as much uh, but they say you can have black coffee and then i'm working out at 10 a.m and the first meal I'm going to eat is at 12 a.m. So I'm, I'm working out at empty. 12 p.m. 12 p.m. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, they say, you know, I don't, I haven't dug into the science that much. I do listen to podcasts on it and, yeah. um, you know, intermittent fasting and fasting in general has been said to, you know, cure diseases for people and cancer and yeah. completely change their diet. But what it does is you're 
fasted cardio when you start to work out at 10 a.m. because you have no food in your body to use as energy. So you start to break down fat. Hmm. And you're using that as fat as a resource of energy, and it's burning fat a lot quicker as opposed to using the breakfast that you just ate. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, benefit that I've listened to, as, as you mentioned, across podcasts. There's a psychological element, too, that I've heard Terry Crews talk about that does intermittent fasting, which I, I What's his window? Usually it's a 16-hour window. He eats for eight hours. Yeah, so yeah, 16-hour window. Yeah, he yep, eats for eight hours during the day. Yep. Uh, what he talks about with intermittent fasting is is taking control over his body and his mind and his stomach and often how uh, they are dictating to us. Yep what we need. And he says that once he tried it and really took control back from his body, that was the, the, the primary benefit that he's taken. It's almost more mental for him. Yeah. Like I can do, you know, I can do this because yep. I'm telling myself. Yep. I've never thought of it like that. Yeah. So world games, uh, we get off of intermittent fasting. See, intermittent and fasting. we were roommates. <laughs> we were, and we were roommates. And, and so we had, uh, in the, out in the middle East, we, uh, my home country, not by origin, but my dad's 100% Lebanese, so it was our first time in the Middle East, but I say that because Mediterranean food is outstanding. Unbelievable. And uh, we definitely had our fair share, morning, lunch, dinner, um, and, uh, and, and that was particularly beneficial for me because you get great proteins, great, great carbs, saturated yep. fats. Uh, but talk about some of the things when you reflect on the kibbutz. You can even explain that, that, uh, that were fun and, and a big part of the experience. Yeah, I mean, so the kibbutz, which a lot of people probably don't even know what a kibbutz is, yeah. um, but there's about you know, a thousand kibbutzes in the Middle East, yep. you know, in Israel. And it's basically like a communal area that people live in yep. and they operate themselves. And everyone in the kibbutz has their income, whatever it be, from a job or whatever, and they all put it into one pot. Yep. And they split it up evenly. So yep. if Paul's making five hundred thousand and I'm making two hundred thousand, well, guess what, Paul? Yep. We're both making three fifty now. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think in the kibbutz in the Middle East, it's more like five hundred dollars yeah. two fifty. But yeah, they, they, I mean, they call it, and know, they work it. You know, yeah. they're working the the cafeteria. They have a grocery store. They have a haircut. You know, it, it's. I listened to Joe Sai uh, talk on Recode, and obviously uh, Alibaba, he was a co-founder of, runs their M&A, and is an executive, uh, is a communist state uh, in in China. And uh, and he said something that was interesting, and I'll connect it back to the kibbutz, but he had said that uh, in the U.S., there's this negative connotation associated with a communist state. Yeah. And he said, we don't think about it that way. Um and and the kibbutzes are, are basically adopting that same methodology where they all share in activities, they all share their pot, and they and they live a very fulfilling and uh, communal life. Uh, so we were part of it. And our kibbutz that we were in, which was in Shefaim, which is 15 minutes north of Netanya, which was where we played our games, there was a 1,000 residents in that area. It didn't feel that way, though. We had our own little quarters. Which was great. Yeah. And so every morning we'd get up as a group, we'd have breakfast, and then our itinerary would consist of team film session, review from the prior game, we'd have a practice, and then once we got into the thick of things, there were seven games in 10 days? Seven games yep. in nine? Not 10. Seven games in 10 days. 
So for someone who was as fit as you and, and the training, it was it was uh it was a lot easier no, for I was, me. I was working out a few times. <laughs> you were you were working out in between. <laughs> so talk about uh, well let's 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 reminisce on our room. It was uh we're sitting here in in a hotel as I mentioned earlier in, in Frisco getting ready for our, our game tonight, and there are uh, full beds in front of us two two full beds. We had uh two twins about half the size. Yeah, the room was about half, half the size. Yeah. The, we couldn't afford to roll over on our mattress no. or we would have hit the ground. Yeah. I, I, we slept well, I guess. I mean, I don't know. We slept well because we were so <laughs> physically and mentally drained. <laughs> I walked away from this World Games really interesting. Having, having won, it's, it's the ultimate climax through your experience and the exclamation point and everything's you know, great and wonderful. But the, uh, the times were trying because the, the living circumstances yep. – uh, weren't easy. I don't know if I slept the most I've slept in a while because of that. It's like, what do we do? Or you know, just sleep. But like, I was sleeping nine hours a night. Yeah. And then we were napping during the day. Yeah. Um, we couldn't, I guess there wasn't much else to do. But it definitely was tough. I mean, we, the shower was, the bathroom was just, Met wet all the time. It's yeah. just these weird showers, like it was tough to quarter shower. glass window and no curtain. It's a mess. Yeah. Um. You know, the high, I guess the the cool part was that we did have our own little area, right? So it was just us all the time, and we could go outside and have a catch and had grass and um could hang out and sit down and hang out and talk and yeah. Um. We had a snack room. Snack, the food was great. Yep. Um. So it, it was cool, but you know, looking back on it. it Definitely more positive about it. We came home with a gold medal. Yep. But, uh, you know, our parents were 15 minutes away staying in a resort on the beach. That yeah. was, uh, you know, first class. That was a, that was a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> but Glad they enjoyed it. If you're anything like me, your workout is one of the most revitalizing parts of your day. And we all know the keys to a great workout, right? Plenty of water, a healthy diet, proper form. But it turns out there's one more major thing that we have to resort to. It's the quality of your sleep. A third of Americans aren't getting good sleep, and Molecule Sleep Products are here to change that. Molecule was air-engineered to create the sleekest and coolest mattresses in the world. They have proprietary extreme open-cell foam technology that works to achieve up to three times the airflow of their nearest competitor. Their unique blend of cotton and tensile offers unmatched softness and durability for the ultimate comfort and cooling experience. Molecule helps you bring your A-game. Not just during your active days, during the deep sleep of your nights. Ask Super Bowl winning quarterback Russell Wilson, Olympic gold medalist Nastia Lukin, and premier American distant runners Ryan and Sarah Hall about how they're getting the best sleep of their lives thanks to Molecule. Even renowned neurologists and sleep doctors agree that Molecule sleep products are for anyone striving to maximize their performance. It's got my name written all over it. Try Molecule mattress risk-free for 100 nights and Molecule sheets for 30 nights. And right now, I'll give you $250 off any mattress or $50 off any sheet if you go to onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up to begin the best sleep of your life. That's onmolecule.com forward slash suiting up. Molecule, optimal sleep for ultimate performance. So the, the, the moment that, that ended all things for the tournament in a positive way for us uh, was your assist to Tom Schreiber with 0.5 seconds left or yeah. however the, the scorekeeper kept left. it. Yeah, enough time there was left. time left. <laughs> um, that game was back and forth. Uh, it was similar to our, our round-robin game where 
except we had the lead for most of the round robin game. Then they came back and took it, and we ended up taking it back with a minute left. And in this one, they were leading for most of the game, and then uh, we tied it on a couple of occasions and ended up winning it in the final moments. What was that last five and a half seconds like for you? Because we were able to get a couple of shots prior to you taking the ball. Yeah. And having those I mean, two You feeds. took a shot. I took a shot. Jordan took a shot. Mm-hmm. And then Tom took two. Um, yeah. The Tom shots were both off of your feet. Yeah. And the Jordan one was like, yours was off a of dodge, right? Jordan came up from X and fed me, and I, I took a step down. You took a step down. And then he, and then he, he took it again. He came around, dodged, so shot, had his helmet knocked off. Yep. Then you picked it up. Because actually what was unique, and to your earlier point around trusting your teammates, is... Well, I picked it up and gave it to Jordan when he came around too. Bingo. So Jordo took the first dodge, fed me. I took a shot, missed high. I pick it up. You pick it up, give it back to Jordo. You see he has a good matchup. Yep. He gets a great shot on great the doorstep. Shot. Had his helmet dislodged. Then, by because of that rotation, you're the sole attack man at X. Yep. And so everything works out. So what was uh, going through your head there? I know it happens so quick, and usually athletes just act on instinct. Yeah, it, it does happen quick, and you're and you're not thinking about the moment you're in at that point. You're just in the game, right? So you're thinking, you're looking. I look at the clock. I'm like, okay, there's five seconds left. Process that. I'm like, okay, let me try and find someone here as quick as possible. So I'm just surveying the field. Yep. And Tom was. It was. It was almost weird how open Tom was the first time around. Yeah, and for how long he stayed open because I have the ball on my stick and you know three, four, five seconds go by until the ref, the ref blows the in. whistle. So I'm like, please no one pick him up. Please no one pick him up. And right when the ref blows the whistle, I'm ready to throw it to him. Yeah. And at the same time, like you know, we play the sport for so long, you don't even think about doing that. But then when I look back at the pass, I was like, it was a pretty far pass. It was. <laughs> and I was like on the end line. Yeah, everything. On and the I field had to throw it hard. So much more. I had to throw it hard. Is. Because yeah. I'm like, there's no time left. Like, I got to get this to him quick, and I don't want someone to pick him up. So I threw, like, a rocket to him, and, and he went to him, and he caught it, and he shot it. Yep. Ball goes out on the other side, and, you know, we spoke about this, and I pick it up on the – where I, I didn't move where I was. I was still on the other side of the goal. So I pick up the ball over there and start running, you know, a little <laughs> a little game management here, you know, uh, haven't played for so long. is just to start running before the ref blows the whistle to get a little speed before you – Blows, blows it. And I think he's supposed to technically say, you need to stop. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's called beating the whistle yeah. in lacrosse. And you did a great job of it. So I just pick it up and I start running to where the ref's standing, to where I'm supposed to pick up a ball. And right when I get pretty much in his area, he blows the whistle while I'm still moving. Yeah. And, you know, it took a step or two. And once again, you're not really thinking about, you know, the thing I was thinking there was like, well, I'm not getting to the goal. I need to just throw it to someone. There was like two point something seconds I left looked at on the, the board. field. I looked at the board and it said, I believe the board in the stadium said two seconds. Yep. And so I looked at that and just like, you know, Tom time. made a, break, a great cut and Ed set that up pick for him and um, he caught it and put in the goal. So, but I, I mean, I completely like don't remember making the pass. I don't remember seeing him open. Like I completely like blacked out. Yeah, it was instinctual. Yeah. So a couple of things for for those that watched it or at least have have heard about the the differentiation between the clock on screen via ESPN2 and what we had on the field and then the element of a quick whistle in lacrosse, which I think is the biggest differentiator between what we saw on the lacrosse field versus what we see in basketball with those last second shots, and here's why. The, the clock on the field was consistent throughout. So when you picked it up 
after Jordan had taken that shot, there was five seconds left on the yep. field. We all saw that. Because I remember thinking I was adjacent. If Rob gets it to me quick, I have enough time to dodge and shoot. Yep. Um, you pass it to Tom. He shoots it. It goes out of bounds. Two seconds left. Uh, then you had that play, and he scores. But the, the difference between when you put a broadcast on, what they were trying to do is match the clock on the field. The clock on the field was quick to the referee whistle. So that was accurate. So what we saw on the broadcast was the time run out, and then they tried to reset it to the clock on the field. Now here's where the quick whistle comes in. In basketball, when that takes place and you reset it, the ref whistles the ball in and they hand it to the player. And they won't hand it to the player until the clock catches up. But in lacrosse, we have a fast whistle. And in your case, being savvy to beat the whistle, you initiated the ball in play before the ESPN cameras or the crew could get the clock to match the field. So there's a there's a big gap there between what we have in lacrosse because of the quick whistle versus giving the broadcast ample time to reset in other sports. Yep. Important to get that off our chest. It is. I mean, people don't realize that. They just, they just watch as spectators rather than understanding what actually is going on. Yeah, because if you watch the screen, it does look a little bit suspect because the clock runs out then yeah. it's resetting Resets. while you're playing yep right but that's the quick whistle on the cross yep. and it's being heady and quick and thinking back it probably should have taken a time right <laughs> two seconds left. it's like maybe we set up a play here or something we could have but, but we I just could have called a timeout yeah i don't know if we had one but yeah i yeah. know yeah it's i mean a lot of teams would probably like let the ball sit for a little bit yeah um, and and, and listen I've, I've said this before obviously we're both incredibly partial playing for Team USA, so we try to look at it objectively. Um, But I'll I'll say if I was on Team Canada, I would have argued. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what you do in sports. Well, you know, and the other thing right now is everyone's talking about the offsides call. Yeah. But, like, my my big thing with that is, like, listen, okay, I get it. Maybe it was a wrong call. I personally think they maybe had too many men. Yeah. Um, Because six guys in one small area of the field – there, I figured there had to be an attackman by the goal. Yeah, we'd have to get a wide shot to find that out. But that happened at three minutes. Yeah. Like, you still got to play three minutes. Yeah. Like, regardless, it happens, it's over. Refs make bad calls. Refs make wrong calls. It happened throughout that game. It happens throughout every game. Yeah. You still have to play what's happening in that moment. So yeah. the bottom line was Canada still needed to defend for, you know, five more seconds. Yeah, and I think I think where where that one got um, inflamed is is that it was towards the back end of the fourth quarter, this where year. there's there's calls that are missed throughout an entire game. Yep. There was a major offsides call that was uh, appropriated incorrectly in the final four, but it was like the second quarter of the game. I remember being like, "Wow!" And it may have been too many men, uh, was we were sitting on the field for that game. It was I think it was one of the games that Yale was in. And, uh, and so anyway, point being is that, you know, as things get tighter and the closer you get to the end, but objectively a bad call is a bad Bad call call. and they take place throughout the entire game. Exactly. So final moments, that'll be, uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest of your career. I mean, it's the biggest, you know, unless I win another one, that'll be the, no, this is still the biggest, you know what, this is still the biggest one because, and that's not even that, you know, like it's great. I would have been just as happy as if, you know, someone else passing the ball. Yeah. You know how we are, man. We talk 100%. about this all the time, the stress and pressure that we put on ourselves as athletes playing at the highest level. And, that you know, we, we talk about how we don't enjoy it enough and we're just constantly trying to get that next one. For someone like me to have gone 0-2 in world games, yeah, it would have been tough, man. I would have yeah. been, I would have been in, a, in a tough place. And, you know, I know that's something that we discuss and try and help each other with, you know, from time to time is just kind of handling that mentally. 
But, I mean, that's going to be the top of my career, I think, ever, just because of how badly I wanted that gold medal more than anything else. Yep. And and I think for athletes that – for all of us that lose monumental games and and win big ones too and then play poorly and play well, uh, I've spent a lot of time with you recently talking about confidence. And one thing that you've shared with me is like, hey, Paul, remember – you have caught thousands of lacrosse balls. You've scored hundreds, maybe a thousand goals. Uh, over a thousand. Yeah. It's got to be. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I guess that's right. It's got to be. And so, like, remember that. Yeah. And it's, it, was very, uh, it was very fundamental for me to hear that because in sports, we talk about being in the zone, talk about being in the flow state and how you can manufacture that. How can you get back there? Because when you're in the flow state, it's like, you know, scoring a goal is like throwing a, a rock into the ocean. Yep. Everything goes. Um, but I think to simplify it and just say like, hey, I've been here before. I have caught a thousand balls. I've put a thousand balls in the net. Like don't ever think this thing and go play is something that, that you think about and, and probably tell yourself all the yeah. time. And it's something Coach K said. We only spoke to us over in, in Israel on the yeah. call. He said, listen, re- rely on your training. You know, know that you've trained and done this and – it's kind of what you have to rely on when things aren't going well. Yeah. Good stuff, brother. Well, I uh, I appreciate sitting here and, and talking about your origin story primarily. Yeah. <laughs> what a great story. It is. And then how it's culminated up to this point and then to uh, many more years playing together. Can't wait, man. All right, brother. If you enjoyed RP3 and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. You can follow and mention us on social media. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel. His is at Rob Pinnell 3 That's two N's, two L's. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with my former Team USA teammate, Kyle Harrison, Iroquois national team captain, Lyle Thompson, and the only person to have won a world championship as a player, an NCAA championship as a player, and as a coach. Dave Petromala. Those and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, please hit subscribe when you find me. Sending you gratitude for doing so. Check out this episode's show notes at suitingupodcast.com. And thank you to today's sponsors, Away, Fixed, and Molecule. We can't do this without you, and your products are fantastic. As always, have a great week, everyone.